I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words. lay a body under earth and trapped in stone bearing marks of our redemption heaven's hero all alone but our father sent his spirit breathing life on Jesus' bone Could a cave contain its maker? Could a rock restrain our Lord? With the resurrected breath, he stole the power of death. Hallelujah! Christ has overcome. 
Hi, welcome to Northview Community Church. My name is Andy Steiger, and I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Northview. We want to welcome you to our online Easter service. Things are looking a little different this year. You know, actually, they're looking a lot different. Normally, we would be gathering together in our different campuses across the Fraser Valley. During this time, one of the things that I'm reminded of is just how incredibly important it is to be in relationship and community with one another. Now that means that we have to get creative right now and a lot of our community is online. But we here at North have been working hard to move our community groups online and different Bible studies and make things available for you so that you can stay connected. If you're not connected into a community group right now, I would encourage you to sign up. You can do so at northview.org under community. There are a variety of ways that you can stay connected as we continue to be one church. Just as a reminder to you parents and children, we have a children's service that you can participate in on YouTube or on our website at northview.org. And now our worship team is gonna lead us as we continue to worship together our risen savior.
Okay, it's that time to grab your Bible, maybe a coffee, or if you're like my family, a cinnamon bun, and we're going to study God's Word together as Pastor Jeff leads us.
For years during Easter, uh, the magazines, you remember what those are? Used to pick them up on the newsstands when I was younger. The magazines would always have on their front page some story about how Easter is upon us and how scholars of the modern time have discovered that it's all relatively a fanciful tale. Um, I remember reading those in magazines like Newsweek and uh, growing up in the States, the US News and World Report. I kind of looked forward to them every year just to see what kind of new twist that those magazine uh, articles would have on Easter and who they would be quoting. Usually it was not somebody who was holding to any kind of traditional view of the Bible. It was always somebody who was saying that the, the scriptures are a little bit weird in general and this story about the resurrection is particularly weird. And I always kind of understood them, to be honest. Um, I don't know if you ever just spent some time looking through scripture and, and taken kind of a skeptic's view of it. Some of you, of course, are skeptics and others, others of us have come from kind of that background. But if you do step back from maybe your faith commitment for a minute and you look at the Bible, it's some weird stories in there, right? I mean, it, it many points looks very myth-like. So he, I wrote down a, a bunch of the things that happened in the, in the Bible that kind of raise, make you raise your eyebrow. Um, snakes talk at the very beginning of it. Uh, the seas are parted by a guy with a, with a staff. Uh, fish swallow men whole and then spit them up on a beach a long way away. Donkeys talk, stop in the middle of the road, turn around to their rider and tell them off. Guys outrun chariots over long distances. Chariots are quite fast. Horses, chariots, fast. Guys just flat out run them. Thin bread appears every morning in the wilderness for about 40 years. Every morning, people of Israel went out and they would see this thin bread called manna, and it would always appear, and they'd collect what they needed for the day. Every day. A virgin gives birth. Men walk on water. Coins are found in the mouths of fish, and baskets of bread are, are multiplied. That's just a few of the things that happen in the scriptures. It's no wonder that so many people, they look at the Bible and they think, man, this is just a story, uh, uh, including a bunch of myths that, you know, it, the fish started being this big and then after the, passing it down for so many years, the fish is this big and, and the stories have outgrown what they, actually, what they actually were and we added miracles into them. It seems to be the approach that many people in the skeptical scholarly community take, take these days. Um, I have had interactions sometimes with people who are coming from that kind of skeptical background, and whenever they bring up all these stories, I kind of nod my head and say, totally, it's crazy, these miracles, right? But what's even crazier is this one about the resurrection. I always say that, listen, if all of those things uh, that you're pointing to, they're all crazy, yes, but none of them are as remarkable and outrageous as Jesus rising from the dead. And in fact, if that one's true, then I don't have a whole lot of trouble believing the others. So here's what I want to do on this day of days, on this, this Easter weekend. I, I just want to spend some time reflecting on the resurrection, this unbelievable 
event. I want to consider it together with you, and what I want to do is I want to show you three things that you need to know about the resurrection when you look at a passage like John chapter 20. So there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John records this just like the others do. He records the resurrection of Jesus, and he brings his unique emphasis to different events as he saw them. So I want to point out three things that he highlights. Number one, uh, there's no question that this happened from his point of view. Number two, there's no no need for crying. And, And number three, there's no way we can stay the same after we view it. So there's no question it happened, there's no need for crying, and there's no way we can stay the same. So look, let's let's look at the first of those, John chapter 20, verse 1. There's no question that this happened. Here's how the New International Version reads. Early, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the, the other disciple. In John's gospel, and are the other disciples mentioned, the one that Jesus loves. He's always referring to himself. So it's Peter and, and John. She comes to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. That's her conclusion from this, right? She could have come back and said, he's risen. But she, did, she wasn't expecting that. None of them were. He's been stolen, is what she says. His body, we don't know where they put him. So Peter, verse 3, and the other disciple, they started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So you can imagine Mary going to this tomb. Of course, she, she, would have, she witnessed um, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. She was one of the ladies who was standing near. While many other disciples ran away, she was standing relatively near the cross and watched the whole thing happen. She was grieving at that time. There's been two nights that have gone by in that time, uh, Friday night and now Saturday night. And she's up early in the morning, we're told, just just before dark or while it's still dark. And she is going to the tomb. We learn that she's going with some other ladies as well from the other gospels. But John is just highlighting that it's her, her, her participation at this point. He's not denying there aren't other women there. He just wants to focus in on Mary Magdalene at this point. And so he says, Mary goes to the tomb. Now, from the other Gospels, we learn that they're going to bring spices to anoint the body of Jesus. The reason that you would do that is because uh, the bodies in those days would start to smell quite horribly quite quickly. And so it was an honorable thing for you to do to anoint the body with spices so it would stave off the smell for a period of time. This is what they're trying to do. They haven't thought it through. There's a stone in front of the, in front of the tomb. They haven't thought that far ahead, but... In their devotion, they're, they're, you know, cross that bridge when we come to it. Roll that stone away when we come to it. Whatever. And so they go down and they see, and Mary sees in particular, that when she arrives at the tomb, the stone has been rolled back. Now what you need to know is that's a remarkable thing to have happened. Because the way that they did the stones in those days when you wanted to roll one in front of the tomb, is you put it, there's a little track that a big, large stone disc would have fit into. And before uh, you, you finish the preparations and the, and the burial of the body, whoever you're, you're burying, you lay, you lay that body in the tomb, usually wrapped, wrapped in linen and prepared for burial. And then you walk out and you dislodge that disc, which is usually kind of uphill from uh, where the entrance of the tomb is. And then it just kind of naturally, by gravity, f- 
falls back into place. Now, we know from the other Gospels that the Romans appointed guards and they, and they uh, took the Roman seal and placed it on the tomb, basically saying, Any, if anybody breaks the seal of this tomb, they are uh, guilty of a crime against Rome and uh, they will be treated accordingly. And accordingly would have been very similar to the way that Jesus was treated for his crimes against Rome or his perceived crimes against Rome. So when she gets there, she sees that this stone has been rolled back in front of, or sorry, the stone that was rolled back in front of the tomb has now been rolled away, essentially been rolled back uphill. And her first conclusion is, oh my goodness, body snatchers. Now that, that is a common assumption in those days. Uh, a lot of people didn't have a whole lot of money or, or things, and you could actually raid, raid tombs, and you could get the linen, usually, that was wrapped around the bodies, very expensive linen. You could take that linen, you could sell it for, for uh, uh, quite a bit of money. And so the assumption would be that the body was taken away and the linen was taken away with it. They're going to sell the linen and they're just going to throw the body in a field somewhere. That is, in the Jewish custom, the, the height of travesty. It, it is a dishonor to the person who died of, of the greatest order. And so Mary is really concerned about that. She wants to honor Jesus and honor his memory, and she's worried that somebody's taken this body, stolen the linen, and thrown his body somewhere. So she's like, we gotta find, we gotta find the body. So she immediately turns around, runs back to where the disciples are, okay? Probably more than just John and, uh, and Peter, but John points out it's Peter and John who hear it first, and immediately, they start, they start running when they hear the news. She actually goes to them and says, says to them, uh, somebody's stolen the body. Uh, we don't know where they've put him. And they take that to say, ah, we need to go see ourselves. And so they take off running. Now, here's the interesting thing from this little passage that has always kind of perplexed me. Uh, I've read this, I don't know how many times, but there's this little, there's this little phrase in here where John, who's writing this, says that he outran Peter. You saw it at the end there, right? Both were running, verse 4, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why, why would you include that? Some scholars think that the reason that uh, John includes that is uh, basically because... Uh, it indicates that he loved Jesus more. That's their theory anyway, that John basically says, well, I ran faster because, you know, I obviously loved Jesus more and Peter was still a bit skeptical. Others have said that uh, what John is saying is that he's in better running order, uh, which for them means that he, he's a better disciple. So this is kind of John touting his own uh, following and his ability a, a, as a disciple. Those don't really seem to fit the way that John writes in his, in his book at all. When I read it, and you just read it on its face, it, it sure seems like John is like kind of just, you know, like if, if I were racing you and I beat you in a race, which would be easy, right? And I beat you, I would say, uh, I would include that in the retelling of the account. You know, oh, we, we raced to the fence, and I mean, I got, I got there first. And in doing that, I'd be kind of like, well, you know, I'm just a better runner, I'm a little faster. 
and it would be a little bit of a little bit of a boast. Some people have read this and said, "Oh, that's that's what John's doing. He's giving this little this little boast." Most people we don't know ultimately what the reason is behind why John includes this. But what everyone agrees about is that this is the kind of statement. This is the kind of testimony that only eyewitnesses give. This is the kind of specificity that only eyewitnesses record. And that's probably true if you think about it. I went to Orlando a number of weeks ago. It was actually just before the COVID-19 pandemic, the people who were hosting the conference. I think that they had thought about perhaps canceling it, but it was before anybody took it as seriously as we should have. Went to this conference in Orlando. Um, there is a way for me to tell you about the conference in Orlando in such generality that I can lie to you, right? And that's the way you do it, is by, by detailing my trip in generalities. I would say something like, um, well, I, I went to the airport and I got on a, we got on an, on an airplane and flew to, uh, flo- to, to, to uh, this distant land and uh, when we arrived there, uh, we went to a meeting in an auditorium, and in that auditorium, several people talked to us, and uh, we came back after some time. Now, in all of that discussion, there is nothing really specific that you can check my facts with. I could tell you that story, and I, I could never have gone, but I told it in such vagueness that you really couldn't check up with it. That's different than if I were to tell you this story by saying, well, it was actually a Sunday morning that I had to, I had to go to the airport in Seattle. I, I drove down there with a few of our pastors, uh, Mark and Jesse and Joshua, and we got on a Delta flight and we flew across the country to Orlando. The flight took, you know, six hours. We eventually arrived there. I might give you the flight number. When we got off, uh, we went to the hotel, and the hotel was a four points by Sheraton or whatever it was. Uh, it was located in this, this situation. You see how the specific specificity I'm bringing to it. So you can check every one of those things. Was there a flight that left at that time? Can I, I can ask Jesse if he came with you. I can check whether or not this actually happened. That is not the way you do a myth. If you want to tell a myth, you can leave things as vague as they possibly can be. But when you read this, it doesn't sound like myth. It sounds entirely like eyewitness account. So much so that John includes this seemingly insignificant detail. Oh, we ran to the tomb, but you know, I got there first. I I mean, I outran outran Peter. This isn't the only place that John, that John does this. John is presenting the resurrection of Jesus as a matter of fact, more than just a matter of faith. Some people say, well, you believe in the resurrection. That means that you have faith in it. Well, yes, but John is presenting it as more than just a matter of faith, that you have to close your eyes and just like jump into the, into the abyss and trust that God is going to carry you. That, no, he's presenting it as a matter of fact. And he does this in other places. So there's this story where Jesus... Um, is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18. And uh, Peter, being as impulsive as he is, he takes his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the, one of the soldiers. The way that John records this is this, in John 18 verse 10, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Isn't that a remarkable I mean, he could have just said, uh, he, he, he cut off this, 
this soldier's ear. But instead, John records it, no, he was the high priest's servant. It was his right ear, and his name was Malchus. So you can probably look Malchus up in the ancient uh, uh, yellow pages and find out where he lives. Go and check it, and he has a surgically repaired right ear, or he could tell you the story about how this guy Peter cut off the ear. John wants you to check it through. Because this story is not just some fanciful tale that happened in Narnia. There's no question. From John's point of view, there's no question that this happened. He's inviting you to investigate it. Ron, I said there were three things that we want to look at. That was the first. There's no question that it happened. But I want to read from verse 3 again. And show one of the main points of this passage, that there's no need for crying. So here's verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, the other disciple, John. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him, and he went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. There's some details here that really bring this to light. First of all, it's no surprise that Peter blasts into the tomb. This is the same guy. If you followed him throughout the Gospels, Peter's the guy who says stuff that no one else wants to say. In fact, sometimes he says stuff that no one else should say. His, his motto basically is speak and act first, then ask the questions later, right? Then think about it later. And there's a lot of people in your life who might be that way. I'm like that, you know? Let's just I just get out there and say it, and then a little while later, I think, oh dear, they shouldn't have said that. You can ask my wife about that. I'm very, very good at this, to be honest. But here's Peter. He gets to the tomb. John is sort of peeking around to look inside the, he looking inside the tomb to see what's going on there. Peter just kind of rushes by him and bounds into the tomb, and he's standing there, and what he sees inside the tomb are strips of linen that are lying in their place, it says. And a cloth that was covering the head, the burial cloth that was covering the head, the language actually in the original language here is it rolled up and, and, and placed there. What this means is that uh, instead of somebody getting up in the middle of the tomb and unwrapping themselves, right, they used to kind of wrap people up like mummies back in those days to, to, after, they, after they died and when they were being entombed. Instead of them standing up and unwrapping themselves and just laying this kind of strip, massive strips, pile of strips of linen, instead what John is saying is that actually the whole thing was intact. The whole thing that was holding Jesus' body completely intact, lying where it was when he was laid there. And the cloth that was covering his head was, was rolled up and, and laid there, right in the place where it should have been. Had he still been there? So this is relatively re remarkable. It means that the body of Jesus probably passed through the linens. A little bit later, Jesus' body is going to pass through the walls in the upper room when he comes and sees the disciples. This is not, this is not a big deal for John, the body passing through these things. But he makes his, his point here is there's two really important points he actually wants to make. One of them is for, for testimony... 
to be uh, admissible in a Jewish court of law, two witnesses had to corroborate it. That's the way it worked. You, you said, oh, I saw this thing and it was only you. People would, in the Jewish courts of law would say, well, we're not going to take that to court because we can't trust just you. There need to be two or three witnesses. If you have two witnesses who witness a particular event, it can be admissible. It's, you see, it has more grounding. So it's not just you, it's somebody else. And so when John includes that he and Peter both saw this take place, and you'll see in a minute that Mary saw it take place. The problem with her in the ancient world is she's a woman and people don't trust the, 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 the witness of a woman in a court of law. But Peter and John, Jewish men, both see the empty tomb. And therefore, it's admissible in a court of law. That's what John wants you to see. This happened. The other reason that he includes this, though, is that the presence of the linen sitting there means that Mary's assumption that the, that, that the grave was robbed and the body was taken is totally off base. Because the only reason that grave robbers would come and take the body is for the linen to begin with. You don't... You don't break into the house, leave the TV, leave all the expensive equipment, leave the jewelry, and walk out. That's not what you do. You take all that stuff. You break into the tomb, you take the valuables, the linen. And yet there they are. So it can't be grave robbers. Somehow, the body of Jesus came through that linen. Well, verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he includes that again, also went inside. And he saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And so what you have here is John has this fledgling belief. He's like, oh my goodness, this actually took place. It doesn't mean that he could have told you the finer nuances of the Trinity at that moment. He couldn't have told you about the hypostatic union or any other theological point. Those are, those are understood later. That's what John's saying here. We didn't see that Jesus had to rise from the dead from Scripture. We didn't understand that yet. We will later. We'll put all the pieces together. But at this point, John sees this and immediately has this fledgling belief. I believe. It's interesting sometimes we who've been in the church for a long time one of the things we always want to have happen is we want uh, the people who believe at the beginning you know and they give their testimony for baptisms or something we want their their theological statements to make sense and when they don't we're like oh did they really believe yes they really believed they just don't totally get it yet John didn't totally get it yet but he believed verse 10 then the disciples went back where they were staying now Mary we returned to her. She started this event. We turned our attention to the disciples who ran to the tomb, saw what was going. They now go back to where they were. Mary is left there. She probably followed them to the tomb. And she stayed outside. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why, why are you crying? Now listen, if, if that had happened to you and you saw angels inside of a tomb, that would freak you out. In fact, most of the other places in the scriptures where angels appear like this, the person they appear to is like, has great fear. And the first thing the angels say is, do not, do not fear. I bring you great news, good news of great joy. 
do not fear. But with Mary, there's no statement of fear. She is so stuck in her tears and grief, she doesn't even pay attention to the fact that two shining angels are in a tomb talking to her. And she just replies as soon as they say, why are you crying? She says, they've taken my Lord away. Not who are you? Not, oh my goodness, angels. They've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. At this, verse 14, she turned around. And she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. One of the things you'll notice when you go through the Gospels is when Jesus appears to people after the resurrection, they eventually recognize him, but several times they don't. So the road to Emmaus, they don't. Peter and, Peter and John uh, will be in the fishing boat later in, later in the Gospel of John, and Jesus will be on the shore, and they don't recognize it's Jesus until a miracle happens. So there's something about the, the resurrected body of Jesus that is similar to what it was in the past that you could recognize him after you realized it was him, but also something different, enough different. This glorified body is enough different to sometimes cause you difficulty. So Mary's having this difficulty. She's probably got tears in her eyes. She's not seeing straight. Clearly, she's not noticing that angels just spoke to her. She's absorbed into her thinking at this point. He, Jesus, verse 15, asked her, Woman, why are, why are you crying? It's the same thing that the angels asked. Who, who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Which, of course, he would have been there for his gardener. He would have been there at this hour early in the morning. He's the only person who would have been around. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, look, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I, I will get him. She's still buying into the belief that his Body has been robbed. Even all the evidence is against it. The, the body is the only thing that explains it. The body has been taken. But then Jesus said to her, verse 16, Mary. And she turned toward him, tears in her eyes, sorrow in her heart. And she cried out in Aramaic, her mother tongue, Rabboni! She called him that all the time. It means teacher. She, re she realizes it's him. That, that language of why are you crying is one I've, I've, I've spoken before. <laughs> if you have children, you have. I, I know you have. You know what it's like when one of your children is at the table, maybe at dinner time, and they've got a glass of milk there or water or whatever it is that you want them to drink on that day, orange juice, apple juice, I don't care. There's a, a glass of something that they're drinking there. And uh, they're really excitable kids, right? Sometimes they stand up at the table. We actually wrapped one of my sons with duct tape because he stood up the table so much. Those are the, that's the kind of parents we are. But sometimes they stand up and they move around and they, you know, they, when they want to make a point, it's this way and that way. And inevitably, the, the water gets spilled, the milk goes everywhere, and they think this is the end of the, end of the world. And they start to, to cry, you know. You, of course, go get some cloths. If you had kids for a while, like, you know this is going to happen. You yourself do it half the time. And so you go get some cloths, you, you dab it all up, and somebody else go get, goes and gets another glass of milk, and they put it before him. And the child, that usually doesn't stop the child from crying. They keep crying. 
even though everything around them has been restored to what it, what it was, even though the problem has been dealt with, they're still crying, they're still in tears, they're still hugging your neck. And what do you say in that moment to them? Why, why are you crying? And when you ask that question, you're not seeking information. You're not trying to figure out, really, I, I don't understand what's causing it. Explain to me what's going on in your heart. You're not looking for information. What you mean it as is a gentle reproof, a gentle rebuke. It's not a harsh one. Why are you crying? That's not the way you say it. You say, why, why are you crying? And in that phrase, what you mean is you don't have any reason. The thing that you were crying about is taken care of. It's not real anymore. The thing that's sitting in front of you is real. The milk is here. Why are you crying? You need to understand that this is precisely how both the angels and Jesus are speaking to Mary. Why, why are you crying? It's not a harsh rebuke. It's a gentle, reproving of her. She's so focused on her grief that she can't lift her head to realize that there's ultimately no need for it, that grief. My, uh, my son whom I love, my middle son, Micah, who uh, is a great delight to me, has always been really expressive. When he was little, we went to Hawaii, uh, which was an amazing trip. It's a friend who had given us, uh, graciously given us a place to stay there, and so we flew to Hawaii, and it was right after my mother had passed away, and so it was a real great reprieve for us. But you know, the state of our family in those days was sad. We were sad about my mother dying. We were also sad about a number of reasons. My son was quite, he was quite young at the time. And so when we, when we got there, you know, you know what it's like. You traveled, I don't know how many hours it takes to Hawaii. You sit on the plane for all that time. And when you're a little kid, it seems like an eternity. You eventually get there, it's hotter than you're used to. You get in a, a rental car. Maybe the rental car is not exactly what you want. And we had a minivan at the time, but not the minivan at home. But when we got there, they had to sit directly next to each other in the rental car. He's touching me. She's touching me. You know, like every, just all of that. You get to the location. You get your stuff in the in the room, and everything seems finally okay. But your your kids are still fighting or dif having difficulty with each other. We went out to go see the place. We went. It was an area called Koolina, and so these massively be beautiful, like aqua blue water lagoons with sand at the shore and like a whole bunch of just manicured grass that you could sit on. It's a gorgeous location. And I walked down into the water with my son who was crying and he was teary and complaining and he, he stood there with his feet in the water and the little waves in the lagoon just sort of lapping up at his feet. It's aqua blue water and you could see the colorful fish just swimming right by. Palm trees on the, on the, on the edge of the grass sand and warm sun, and he's still crying. So I, so I grabbed his little face and I said, Micah, honey, tell me, what, tell me what you see right now. Palm trees? Yeah, there's palm trees. What do you feel right now? Water on my feet? Is the water nice? Yeah. Is it warm? Yeah. Do you feel the sun? Yeah. We're in Hawaii, son. Look around you. It's magnificent. All of the difficulty in getting here is over. We're here in Hawaii. Son, 
tears coming down his eyes. What? Why are you crying? There's no crying in Hawaii. <laughs> why, why are you crying? My, my point here is it's easy for us to be like Mary. It's easy for us to get like, like Micah in that occasion. We, we get focused on the sorrow before us, the things that we've gone through, the difficulties of our lives. We zero in on them and they consume us. It's never going to get better. It's always going to be like this. It hurts so much. And we cry. We don't understand. And we cry. We can't lift our heads to see the bigger picture. Oh, yeah? What bigger picture? All right. Um, how about this? The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that death has been defeated. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he gets an opportunity to talk about this, he actually taunts death from somebody who knows that Jesus rose and by having faith in him, he too will rise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55, he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? That's the kind of thing you, you say when you dunk on the other guy. What you got? What you got, death? Where's your victory? Where's your sting? You got nothing. How about the fact that the resurrection means that Jesus then is the victor and those who have faith in him will also rise in victory? Romans 8, verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. What Jesus experienced, the victory over death, will be yours, guaranteed. Those who have faith in Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, he is a down payment for what will come. The power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is yours and will raise you as well, give life to your mortal body. And this is guaranteed, Romans chapter 8. Verse 38 and 39, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the question. When you lift your eyes off of the tear-inducing drama in your life, when you lift your eyes up and you survey that landscape and you see the palm trees of his grace and feel the warm water of your future, why are you crying? Shouldn't this knowledge instead make you boldly joyful? I mean, I mean, those who've defeated death are basically, I hope you understand this, they're basically eternally bulletproof. Not in the moment bulletproof, but eternally bulletproof. There is nothing that will happen to you in your life that will separate you from the love of Christ. Your future is completely guaranteed because of him and what he's done in defeating death. Death can't have the last word because Christ has already had it. 
My sons play video games from time to time. I do too. I get into it. One of the things I sometimes play are these games where you have to jump over, you know, rocks or whatever. And sometimes they're the shoot 'em up games where you're shooting the aliens or whatever. It's nothing quite as good as a dead alien in those games. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that is that uh, my sons, when they play, they just bomb forward and they they just get into the fight as quickly as they can. And I'm the person who kind of sits back and like watches and doesn't get involved because I'm, I'm scared of my character dying. One of my boys said to me one time when I was doing this, Dad, why are, why are you not just running forward? You know, that once, you know that once they shoot you and you go out of the game, you just respawn, right? I hadn't thought about that. And when that knowledge started to hit me, I was like, oh, oh yeah. Actually, there is no such thing as ultimate death in this game. You just kind of keep going. Eventually, eventually, you win the game because you have like a thousand lives or whatever it is. But isn't that basically the case? Isn't that basically what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is supposed to do to people like you and me? It's taken away the specter and danger of eternal death. Yes, you can die in this life. Yes, you can. But it will never have the final say over you and me. And that kind of knowledge just produces a kind of boldness that ought to mark us. You ever thought about the cowering disciples who run back to where they are and they're afraid in the upper room and they're worried about what people are going to think, whether the Jews are going to come after them now that they killed Jesus, but then the resurrection happens, Jesus appears to them, and these same cowering disciples who ran away from him at the cross are the same ones in the book of Acts who are staring down the world's governments for the sake of the gospel. How'd that happen? Resurrection boldness is how that happened. Resurrection boldness. I was talking to a nurse this week and was asking her, you know, how does your Christian faith affect the way that you serve? And one of the things that, that she said, and I've spoken to other nurses who said the same, the people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they say, you know what? Even in the hospitals during this COVID-19 crisis, the doctors and nurses are faithfully giving. God bless them, right? Regardless of their background or whatever, but they're giving, they're giving themselves. But there is a genuine amount of fear, you know? A lot of them are thinking, you know, look, if I get the sickness and it affects me like this, like I really am, I might, I might actually die. And there's an amount of anxiety and fear that comes with that. But she said, you know, being a Christian, that's not really the case for me. Yes, I'm a little bit worried on certain moments and things like that. But when I stop and I think about it, I... I have a savior who beat death. So I can charge into a hospital and I can give of my life and give of myself and trust that the Lord, even if I get sick and he takes me, this is not the final word. Talk about boldness. Talk about the kind of boldness that's needed in this day. Resurrection. Boldness. There's, there's no need for crying. He is risen. So will we. All right, last one. It's not very long. I just want to look at verse 16 to 18 and, and try to make the point, uh, there's no way we can stay the same. I kind of started on that point just a second ago, but let me finish it. Jesus said to her, verse 16, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead. Don't stay here and just hold on to me at my feet. Just go 
to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. You know, I've told you before in churches in, when we've met together that um, the way you figure out the meaning usually of a narrative, of a story, is you can trace the character development. What are the characters like at the front end, the chief characters? What are they like at the front end of the story and what, what are they like at the end? When you do that comparison, you usually, you usually realize what the author's point is. So when you apply that to this story, how was Mary at the beginning of the story and what was she like at the end? You probably didn't notice at the very beginning, but it said, it said Mary actually went to the tomb uh, while it was still dark. She, she's in darkness. She's perplexed by what's going on. She has no idea what's happening. She kind of wanders around in her tears and grief and sorrow until finally she sees the risen Lord, lifts her head to the horizon, realizes the big picture realizes there's no need for crying. And this woman, who is stuck in darkness, doesn't know which way to turn, isn't sure about anything, becomes a bold proclaimer of the gospel, the first missionary in the history of the Christian church. How do you go from unsurety, lostness, darkness, to light and conviction and missionary boldness? How do you... How do you do that? Well, the resurrection's how you do that. Because the resurrection changes you. It, oh, it always changes you. It has to. What's interesting is if you go on in the next passages, like seriously, if you go in the next few passages, you see the same thing with the different characters. John's like making this point over and over again. So here's what you get in the next, immediately next passage. John, uh, or Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room. In John 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, right? So they're afraid of these Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed. Go from fear to overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. My fear, lostness, cowering to joy and bold proclamation with authority. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and when you forgive sins, they'll be forgiven. Woo, that's a difference. Resurrection changes you. There's no way you can stay the same. The next passage, John 20, Jesus appears to Thomas, who apparently wasn't in the upper room when these other guys were there, and so he doubts says, non Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, and listen, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. I won't believe it. Unbelief. A week later, verse 26, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus appears, well, comes through the doors just like he came through the, the linen. And he stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, he goes directly to Thomas. He said, put your finger right here. See my hands? 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, that is a high Christological statement. You are who you said you were. You've proven it, my Lord and my God. You've proven it through the resurrection. Doubting Thomas, unbelieving Thomas becomes profoundly professing, bold Thomas. Resurrection's got to change you. It always, it always changes us. If we accept it, there's no way we can stay the same. And you say, but I'm a, but I'm a worrier. But I worry about everything. I worry about my future. I worry about my kids. I worry about now. I worry about the pandemic. I worry, I worry, I worry. Yes, but if, if Jesus rose and you'll rise like him and the big stuff is all sorted in your life, lift your eyes. Should you be worried like you do? Or because of the resurrection, can your worry be turned to confident peace? With the knowledge that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise your mortal body with him. And all the worries will prove to be unfounded. You, you, you say, uh, but I'm afraid of the opinions of other people. I'm like those hiding disciples, cowering. What, what, if, what if they come and get me? What if they say something bad about me in social media? What if I get kicked out of this or that? What if my friends in school reject me because of my belief in Christ? But, but, but if he rose and your future is sure and the final verdict of righteous has been spoken over you by Almighty God, should you, should you fear them? Like if God has made that statement about you, should you fear them? Should you fear them? Now your fear, because of the resurrection, could be turned to boldness. You're eternally bulletproof. Yes, but I struggle with commitment to God, you say. I got go in and I go out. I'm like, I want to have one foot in the room and one foot out. And I struggle with having my life be committed to the things of this world. And sometimes I come to church and I say, yeah, I should do this. But then I go back and then I die. I'm lukewarm. Back and forth I go. But listen, listen now. If he rose, shouldn't you be proclaiming the same thing that Thomas did, who also was be in and out, wasn't sure and unbelief, and then uh, maybe... Shouldn't you be proclaiming the same thing? My Lord and my God, he has proven that he is God because he said he was, he backed it up with the resurrection and he appeared to all of these people. that He actually is who he claimed to be. And if he's God, he has a right to define your life for your good. So why stay out of the room? He's the right side of history. Resurrection should change you. Your lukewarmness because of the res res resurrection become full commitment. So look, we say something every, every Easter. We can't say it to each other face to face right now, but it goes like this. Usually the pastor says, he is risen. And everybody responds, he is risen indeed. So he is risen. He is risen indeed. So let the transformation begin. In response to the message, let's pray.
Lord God, as we come before you on this Easter weekend, we're reminded that we have good reason to place our hope and our trust in you. You are the risen Lord. And God, as we go through this time of uncertainty and a time in which it can be difficult to know what to put our hope on or what to trust as everything kind of seems to just be falling apart, I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded from your word that we can place our trust in you. We can place our hope in you. And that in you, we can see through all of those challenging times of life, not just this one, but those that are yet to come, and that we will continue to entrust ourselves to you, that we will continue to place our hope in you, knowing that you have defeated death, that you have defeated all the things that that want to entrap us, that want to uh, ensnare us to, to be afraid, to, to lose hope, that we would be strong in you. And God, as, as, as we are encouraged by the hope that we have in you, Lord, I pray that we would be an encouragement to others. As you've blessed us, that we would bless others. And one of the very tangible ways that we can do that is in the way that we give to the work of your church. And so God, as we give now of our tithes and our offering. God, would you use it, would you bless it to the furthering of your kingdom? I know that things are, are challenging right now for many of us, but I pray that we would give from what we have and we ask that you would multiply that and that you would continue your work as we continue to show and to share the hope that we have in a risen Lord. Amen. As we continue our service, we wanna respond in giving. You can do so online or you can also text GIVE to the number on the screen. You can also send in a check and you can also bring it into our office. We have office hours that are normally nine to two on Monday, but given the holiday, we'll be open this next week on Tuesday from nine to 2 p.m. Hallelujah. 
And now as we end our service, I want to leave you with the word from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.